0: Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. I've been producing podcast episodes for Ohio Folklore for nearly a year now. During that time, the requests for an episode on the legend of Gore Orphanage in Ohio's Lorain County have never ceased. This widely known folktale has captured the imagination of countless Ohioans. To be honest, at first, I was reluctant to dive in simply because the topic has been covered by so many sources already. But when the interest among the listeners just kept rising, I decided to give in. I was glad to find real depth to this story and a unique angle I think you'll appreciate. So without further ado, let's delve into one of Ohio's most widely known and deeply held legendary stories. Let's explore the legend of Gore Orphanage. The best way to learn about the myth, the hype, the lore of legend is from the locals. During my research on this episode, I had the great fortune of connecting with two such men. Each were born in Lorraine County. Each grew up hearing the tale of a remote and densely wooded location haunted by the spirits of tortured children. For many youths growing up in Lorraine County, it's a kind of rite of passage to sojourn there. Some with curious minds rally a group of their closest friends to traipse through the deadened leaves and fallen branches. The braver among them wait until after sundown, when the night insects come alive and start their calling. Many kids are brought by older siblings looking to prove their mettle, And some, I'm sure, enjoy watching the youngest among them trying to prove they're not scared, despite their rapid breathing and trembling voices. The first local we'll hear from is Ryan Lawrence. He graciously shared his own story of a trip he'd made with a friend during their teenage years.
1: So, I don't know if you know how, how it looks when you go down there, but so it's, it's in the middle of nowhere, right? Like Gore Orphanage, there's a road called Gore Orphanage Road, and it that ends because there's, there's like a, an out bridge, and it's been out for years. Since I've gone down there, there's been a road closed sign there. I started driving down there like maybe eight years ago, so it's been closed forever. It's, it's really hard to get down there, so when you're finally down there, there's like a fork in the road. And it goes down into this, down by this uh, lake. There's like a little bridge that's um, got no railings or anything. And it goes over a little river that comes off of that lake. I went with one of my friends who's from Pittsburgh. And um, so we drove out that way. And it's it's like about, about a half hour drive from my house. We go and find it, which it's actually kind of hard to find because there are some road closings down there that haven't been addressed in years. Um, so we finally get down to the little valley area where it's at. As we're driving down there, there's a big open field before you get to the, the bridge part. And there was probably at least a dozen cop cars with our lights on um, across an open field, right by where this was. And we had no idea there was even a road over there. And uh, I stopped my car, I... Turn, I pulled down my uh, windows, and there was no sound. It was silent. It was so odd and eerie. So go to check our phones, see if there's something going on, both of our phones are dead. Well, not dead, but they're, they have no service. So we're like, okay, this is weird. We go down to where the bridge is, and there's no service down there either, and we're like, this is odd. So she freaks out, <laughs> of course. We start hearing a siren um, nearby, and we're like, okay, like, we should probably head out because, you know, I don't know if this is, you know, private property. So we head out and we don't see any vehicles that have a siren. And then we go back and look to where that shield is and all those lights are gone. That huh. we saw five minutes before. And then we didn't get our phone service back until we got out of that area completely. And I called my one friend that had an experience himself. And it was, he was like, dude, are you serious? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty, uh, pretty creaky. And I had been down there a couple times already. Like I, I had been there maybe three times before that, and I didn't have any experiences that were odd, per se. Like I had some, um, there was just some random stuff, like the the noises from under the bridge, because um, we like to go in the wintertime, and obviously like, there's all that ice that's cracking off there, and it just makes it even, even spookier. I think it's where a lot of the folklore and... and And rumors come from is that kind of stuff, where it's like it's just a weird sound and a coincidence, and everybody starts freaking out. It's it's fun. (laughs) I'm sure there's like completely, you know, good explanation to why there was all that stuff going on when I went down there, but doesn't make it any less less weird and creepy.
2: And it was pretty clear you could tell from the lights that they were cops.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I even looked over a couple of days, I, and there was no police reports that I could see, like, something that would be that many cops. So it was
2: really weird. Hmm. Could have been any number of issues. Who knows? A drunk driver or, you know. Do you have any guesses about why this has held such a, such a hold on people's imaginations out there? What is it about the area, maybe, that just...
1: I think part of it is, is the isolation, um, I think that because it is hard to find, because it is kind of in a spot where it, it's a little out in the middle of nowhere, it's a little bit of a drive for anybody to go get, get there and find it. Um, you actually have to know where you're looking or you will never find the place. It makes it a little, you know, a bit of an adventure. When you get down there, like, there have been stories of you know, teens getting arrested down there because they're trespassing, so it's like it's another one of those things where people are like, well, let's check this out. If people are willing to you know, call the cops on you for down there. There must be something down there.
3: Um, right.
1: It's one of those things where it's, you're kind of like, wow, this is a very weird place. And then there's stuff that happens with the the, the bridge, which is very odd because there's, it's basically crumbling. You know, it's, it's probably made of material, which is why it's probably got something in it, you know, that fixed cars have problems on it. And so, when that, I mean, that happened to my friends, like the first or second time they went down there. And so, I mean, I can't imagine how many times it's happened to other people where their cars stalled out on that bridge. And so, it happened one or twice, and then it spreads to a bunch of people, and then everybody heard about it. You know what I mean? I, I honestly think people should go down there, because there, there is something weird about the place. Even though I, I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily haunted or anything like that, it's definitely, there's something weird about it. You go down there, and there's, there's too many instances of something happening that I've heard from from my friends or that happened to myself where it's like this there's it's too weird to be a coincidence It's happened that many times so there's there's there definitely is something about that place but yeah i I think people should go down there and check it out frankly for themselves and see because i didn't believe any of that stuff until i went down there and had a experience myself
2: yeah and then you're like okay
0: Ryan's story gives us a taste of what it feels like to explore this hallowed ground for ourselves. There's something about being young that keeps a natural curiosity alive for these kinds of quests. Our next guest, Eric Defabaugh, starts by describing his experience of having gone to Gore Orphanage with an older brother when he was only 11 years old.
2: Do you remember when you first heard the story, or were you pretty young?
3: Yeah. yeah, I was 11 years old. Uh, my first memory of the story. Uh, I have older brothers. I'm actually the youngest of seven. So I have a wow. number of older siblings. Uh, my earliest memory of it was my brother had just gotten his license in his first car and we all piled in his car and right. we're, um, they decided to drive down there. I had no clue where we were going. So uh, he filled me in on the story as we're heading down there. So, okay. um, and it was dark. <laughs> and uh i had already had an interest in the paranormal i love ghost stories so as we're driving down uh if you've ever been to go orphanage you know it's kind of a remote location so there's a uh there's a main road route 60 and there's several different uh paths you could take to get down to the orphanage road off of 60 and i believe if memory serves me correct that we we came down off darrow and uh when, when you head south off darrow you kind of drop down into the hollow and you see nothing but trees and darkness. It's pretty, uh, foreboding atmosphere down there. Um, but as you drop down into the valley, you kind of make this hairpin turn on the gore from its road. And, um, that's when things really get spooky because there's just absolutely nothing down there. It's very dark. It's very desolate. And for 11 an year old kid, you think you're in the middle of, you might as well be in the middle of the Amazon. You have no idea, where the nearest person is um, and even now as you go down there now uh, at night in particular uh, it, it still seems like it's very remote you, you go down there you get out of your vehicle and it, all you hear is you know forest sounds and there's no seemingly no civilization down there but if you go down there during the day it's kind of a different story you can see there's other homes down there you get the, the sense that it's not quite as remote as you think it is at night
2: Okay. And especially from a child's viewpoint. Exactly. With, um, that, that's right. What do you remember about once you arrived at the scene itself?
3: Yeah. So uh, that's another thing that kind of changes with time. If you go there now, you, you see that the foundation is uh, fairly close to the road. It, it, it's only a few yards, actually. Uh, as a kid, though, it seemed like we wandered through the woods for a significant amount of time. Maybe yeah. because we didn't take the right path initially, that that's also possible. Yeah, like uh, it it was it was kind of an amazing sight actually because you know you think of a foundation of a home, you think of this flat, rectangular or otherwise house shaped slab of concrete, and uh, that's not the case at all. I hadn't accounted for how time and nature would uh, affect the area, so when you right. get back there, it, it it more looked like a, a landscape of stones, small, large. Big slabs that have kind of been pushed around by growing trees and the, the constant freeze-thaw cycle here in, in northeast Ohio breaks up the, the, the concrete and stones. And uh, the hundreds of thousands of visitors over the years uh, also has its uh, toll. Things have been moved about. And it, every time I go there, there's something different. I, I went there just a few weeks ago. And there's a there's a big pile of like looked like someone was starting to have a a large bonfire there in the center of the foundation that they piled up all the branches into a a pyramid there.
2: I've not been there myself, but I have uh, read that people are known to leave various kinds of like objects, uh, like occult things, pentagrams and uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. And that maybe people do seances out there still. uh, Yeah. Right. Okay.
3: Yeah, I, I, You see evidence of that. There's one stone in particular. The first thing you come across is, is maybe a, a four-foot tall uh, column, a base of a column. Um, they say that was the hitching post for the house. That's the where, you know, visitors would hitch your, their horses to. So that has graffiti on it, and the most prominent graffiti are usually occult symbols.
2: Okay. You do have
3: the you, you occasional Joe loves Joni kind of stuff, too, but... <laughs> Generally, it's the the foreboding pentagram or something like that. So the the, the gentleman that has since retired, uh, I I won't say his name, he used to be stationed down there. He was a park ranger, and he was a bit of a prankster. So one of the the, uh, legends that you hear is when you go down there, you leave your car, you head into the woods, and then when you come back, you find little, small children's handprints on your car. Uh Uh-huh. That was probably this park ranger. He 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 would see cars parked at that spot. There's there's, o- there's only a couple spots that you could park down there. He he had a, a way of leaving small handprints on your car.
2: <laughs> oh so, boy, yeah, he's having fun with those kids.
3: Yeah yeah. So there is an element of that. You know that he he kind of played along. He he used to give tours of, of the foundation down there. The Metro Parks used to offer. Um, they had their own little bus and they they take you down there. And they would kind of help you separate the fantasy from reality down there. So, and th- this gentleman was the the guide for these tours. He, he had been on the property for quite some time. He's seen his share of things, but he's less inclined to uh, attribute that to any kind of paranormal activity. He's very much a skeptic, but he, he was also a prankster. So... And that's kind of a very popular uh, tourist area, you know, a destination for kids and adults. Um, You run into people of all ages down there. But very, very common to run into groups of teenagers down there who bring their girlfriends down to scare them.
2: So that that also is what I've been gathering uh, so Mm -hmm. far. I'm I'm glad that I'm on the right path here. Um, Do you have any thoughts about what you hope happens with the area in the future? I know it's, in a, it's a park now, it looks like. Right. Yeah,
3: there there are plans to make it a natural park. Uh, that's part of the reason why the, the metro parks tried to throw a wet blanket over the whole uh, paranormal aspect. There are actually, there's a couple trails on the property already. The little, the small trail takes you to the foundation. That actually continues further back and you reach the river and then it goes down along the river. And their plans are eventually to actually have that as a, uh, a remote uh, segment of the park system. So that's the plans of it. And once the Metro Park gets, it's a done deal. They'll probably never see private hands again.
2: That's probably a good thing.
3: Oh, yeah. No, uh, with the river, uh, the ruined River there is, is very scenic.
2: When you think about the location, of Gore Orphanage in particular, is there anything that you think really captures the people's imaginations for for so long? Um, and I know you mentioned it's just a palpable feeling yeah. that you have.
3: Well, it's a it's very close to home if you if you grew up in this area, Lorain County, Erie County, into the Sandusky. Even um, so, it's an excellent story for one, um, but it's so close. One person tells the story to the next person, and the next person tells it. Some details get left out. Some details are exaggerated to ridiculous proportions. Um, so that, that always, that, that's, you know, obviously very common. You deal with folklore. That, that's very common in, in any story that's like a local legend. So the story gets better or worse, depending on your perspective, uh, as generations go on. Um, so the, like the original stories that I heard had some basis to reality, but a lot of it was just stuff that kind of evolved over the years.
0: Eric's intrigue with the legend of Gore Orphanage would last well beyond his first trip to the location at 11 years old. He would go on to write a book on local legends called Haunted Lorraine County. It's found easily on Amazon and other places that sell books. Both Eric and Ryan's personal experiences as young people provide a window for the rest of us. Through their eyes, we can imagine what it must have felt like to hear the tale for the first time. For most natives of Lorraine County, this desolate wooded area outside the village of Birmingham has held an eerie tension and a spiritual allure for more than a century. It all started with one extraordinary couple by the names of Miller and Harriet Wilbur. Their tragic yet awe-inspiring lives would ignite the folk legend that persists today. It's their story that imbues the Gore Orphanage site with an air of wonder and mysticism. Much of it is misplaced. Many people today mistakenly believe this specific location was once the site of an orphanage. Many mistakenly believe it was burned to the ground by its dastardly owner, a man named Gore, a caretaker turned arsonist and murderer. Many mistakenly believe that if you sit quietly at the spot where these orphans burn to death, that you'll hear their cries for help. Few know the genuine story. It's been buried underneath more than a century of fiction. Let's reveal the truth of the legend of Gore Orphanage. In some ways, the actual details are more profound than any ghostly tale. Miller Wilbur was born in Preble, a small town in rural New York, in 1854. He was the only child of Nicholas and Eliza Wilbur. They were a farming family with some financial means, a rarity in those days. Perhaps their wealth had been inherited from generations before them. In any case, Miller's life would be forever changed when in March of 1866, his father responded to an ad for the sale of an Ohio farm. It read, The well known farm recently owned by Joseph Swift Jr., situates on the Vermilion River in the township of Brownheim, Lorain County, Ohio. This farm contains 185 acres of the best land in a high state of cultivation. Well fenced and with a good dwelling house, barns, carriage house, and granary in good order, this farm will be sold for cash. Possession given immediately for particulars, apply to Joseph Swift, Jr. When he was about 14 years old, Miller's father would buy the farm. These 185 acres were known to the locals as Swift's Hollow, after the man who initially constructed the homestead, Joseph Swift, in 1817. The Vermilion River meanders through its bountiful fields and dense forests. The Dwelling House, so modestly referenced in the ad, was called the Swift Mansion. This Greek Revival home had 14 rooms boasting 15-foot ceilings. Inside, surfaces were covered in marble and ornate woodworking. A magnificent veranda offered a natural vista of the changing leaves in autumn. The family moved into this famous farm outside Birmingham, They worked to keep its reputation among the locals as a verdant and elegant place among the more ordinary farms that dotted the landscape. Miller, the only child, tried hard to meet his parents' expectations. Along the way, he would have the good fortune of meeting the love of his life, a Miss Harriet Kellogg of Berlin Heights, Ohio. Harriet was two years his junior. She was one of two daughters born to Simeon and Caroline Kellogg, She'd also been raised on the farm, and their shared background likely proved helpful to their young marriage. They wed on March 26, 1878. The couple's wedding announcement was found in a national spiritualist newspaper. It read, The marriage of Mr. Miller Wilbur of Birmingham to Miss Hattie Kellogg of Berlin Heights occurred on the 26th of March at the residence of the bride's father. Hudson Tuttle officiating. Hudson Tuttle was a leader and prolific author of the spiritualist movement, and he lived all his life in the tiny village of Berlin Heights, Ohio. He was known to conduct seances, inducing himself into a trance like state, when he would then begin what was called automatic writing. The theory was that spirits would possess him and write their messages through his hand. On the surface, it all sounds like a scam, but he was taken seriously by countless followers. He wrote and published volumes. One of his ardent followers was Charles Darwin himself. Two others were Miller and Harriet Wilbur. Spiritualism had reached its peak worldwide at the time of their marriage in 1878. Many of you may have heard of spiritualism. For those who haven't, let's consider a brief summary. Its impact is felt yet today in our collective folklore and history. Its primary belief is that our deceased loved ones live on in spiritual forms. These spirits continue to advance and develop well beyond our human capacities. And even more to the point... These spirits have the ability and inclination to communicate with us, the living. Spiritualists devote their lives to sensing the spirits among us. Their goal is to make contact with them. This way, the living can better themselves. They believe they can learn the nature of God through communication with deceased loved ones. While these beliefs may seem outlandish to many... They encapsulate much of our society's current obsession with ghost hunting, Ouija boards, and reality show psychic mediums. Today, many view these practices with much skepticism. In decades past, spiritualism was a full-fledged religious movement. It had adherents all over the world numbering in the millions. It remains today in far fewer numbers with communities in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. In the late 1880s, Miller and Harriet Wilbur counted themselves two among the millions that actively practiced the religion. Harriet had been born and raised in Berlin Heights. Who knew such a tiny Ohio village would serve as a hotbed of spiritual activity in the late 19th century? No one could guess that the energy would spread toward Swift's Hollow. After their marriage in 1878, the couple would move in with Miller's parents, Nicholas and Eliza Wilbur. The mansion had been dubbed with its own name, Rosedale. The newlywed couple would live there for four years before welcoming their first child in 1882, a son they named Jesse. They would then return to Harriet's parents' home in Berlin Heights. There, they would welcome their daughter, May, a year later. And finally, twins Roy and Ruby would arrive in 1890. The family was growing. Farming was good, and the income was more than enough to support them all. However, their good fortune would come to a screeching halt in January, 1893. Jesse and May, the eldest Wilbur children, had traveled to Rosedale to visit their grandparents. Upon their return home to Berlin Heights, May came down with a serious illness. Her symptoms began with a sore throat and fever, then progressed to a barking croup and a severely swollen neck and throat. Within a couple days, Jesse began showing the same signs. And then, even worse, the two-year-old twins became sick as well. The diagnosis was clear. A dreaded disease whose signs were known and feared by all. Diphtheria. The highly contagious bacterial infection proved fatal for many, especially children, whose immune systems were fragile. To them, it was more deadly than smallpox or yellow fever. Less than a year earlier, the state health department had issued specific guidelines for management of the illness. They included quarantining the child to one room in the house allowing contact with only limited caregivers. Most rural hospitals would not accept children infected with diphtheria, as they were unable to manage such a serious, contagious epidemic. The infected child's room at home was to be stripped of all unnecessary items on which the bacteria could settle. A large sign was to be placed on the front entrance of the home, warning all who would enter. For especially virulent homes, a police officer was to be stationed outside at all times, preventing others from entering. Under no circumstances were healthy children to enter an infected home. The victims' bedding and eating utensils were to be kept separate from the healthy members of the family. Children who were lucky enough to survive the disease had to remain under quarantine for weeks after recovery as they remained contagious, Those who died from the disease, which were many, were not given a public funeral. Only a sealed casket for small private gatherings was permitted by the state. A common home remedy for the dreaded disease was to pour equal parts tar and turpentine into a tin cup and then heat it to boiling. The sickened child was then to breathe in the fumes until he coughed up the mucous membranes that were filling up his throat... Many died despite attempting this method. Two-year-old Ruby would be the first of the Wilbur family to suffer that fate. She succumbed after only a couple days of the illness on January 13, 1893. Her older brother, 11-year-old Jesse, would be dead the following day. An article was published in the Sandusky Daily Register four days later Detailing the saddest of circumstances for the Wilbur family, it acknowledged the deaths of little Ruby and Jesse and expressed hope that the two remaining children, May and Roy, might yet survive. May had already been suffering from the symptoms for a week, and physicians had hoped that she might pull through. The entire community had been made aware of the family's plight. But by the time the article had gone to print, May had died. The couple's last surviving child, little Roy, would take his last breath one day later on January 19th. Miller and Harriet could do nothing more than watch by the bedside as one by one, each of their children died in the span of a week. Most of us can't even imagine the pain of losing one child. The idea that such a bright young life could be snuffed out before our own is just unfathomable. What does it mean to lose all four of your children, and in one week, and in your own home as you watch each one succumb to their inevitable fate? How could a parent, any parent, survive such horror? How could a marriage endure the immeasurable pain and grief that would haunt them for the rest of their days? This is where faith came to save them. Eliza Wilbur, Miller's mother, had been suffering from diphtheria for weeks. Come early February, Miller and Harriet returned to Rosedale. It was less than two weeks after burying their children in a large family plot in Maple Grove Cemetery outside Vermillion. The couple would live in the stately mansion once more to care for his ailing mother. What sustained them was their ardent belief that while their children's physical bodies ceased to be, their children's spirits remained in their midst. Miller and Harriet retreated to their faith and held fast to the knowledge that their children had grown into advanced spiritual beings. As Eliza began to improve, the couple began holding seances regularly within the home. On some occasions, professional mediums would be invited to lead the ceremonies. Friends, extended family, and community members were encouraged to attend. The Wilbers evangelized their message of life beyond the veil. It was these first occasions when townspeople would put on their best hiking boots to traipse out into the wilds of Swift's Hollow. Fighting swarms of insects, and no doubt getting lost a few times along the way, they would eventually arrive full of excitement, anticipation, and a healthy dose of fear. Such feelings are well known to those who sojourn to this site yet today. Few have any clue that they're partaking in a ritual that's repeated itself countless times for more than a century. On walking past the large ionic columns of the front entrance, attendees would come into a darkened room lit only by candles. Soft, spiritualist hymns would be hummed low, in unison, When all had arrived, the outside doors were locked tight, sealing out the influences of the outer world. All present, then gathered in a circle, joining hands. Soon, one or more of them would enter into a trance-like state, offering their bodies to the spirits roaming freely in their midst. Their voices were not their own. Their mannerisms, foreign to their character. Most became wholly convinced that dearly departed souls were not only communicating, but that they remained present, beside them, day by day. Eliza had, quite fortunately, survived her bout with diphtheria. However, she would die after only six years, in 1899, there at Rosedale. Funeral services were, of course, held in the home and officiated by none other than spiritualist leader Hudson Tuttle. The entire Wilbur family and their sprawling, elegant estate were now known for the mystic, spiritual practices. Miller and Harriet would go on living another 37 years. Some of that time would be spent there at Rosedale. What sustained them was likely the promise of connecting with their deceased little ones. These seances would continue until the sale of the property to the Light of Hope Orphanage sometime around 1903. No one could predict the evil and very earthly forces that would grow next door to where the mansion once stood. The Light of Hope Orphanage was a nonprofit organization that claimed to offer safe haven to orphaned children. It had about 100 children in their care at any given time. The orphanage's property abutted Swift's Hollow to the north, although the organization owned Rosedale and all its property. Once it became unoccupied, the mansion fell into ruin and decay, leading further credence to its reputation as a haunted house. In those days in the early aughts, rumors began to swirl about the orphanage's abuse of children as they forced them into long hours of labor in the fields. Some children were reportedly starved or fed spoiled meat. School attendance was only permitted when the weather was unsuitable for work in the fields. Many children were allegedly beaten, and some were believed to have disappeared without a trace. It seemed the organization was allowed to carry on without oversight of the law. And the area, which had been known for its spooky reputation, had now become tainted with signs of abuse and cruelty toward the weakest members of society. When the word of mouth had grown to a crescendo, newspaper reporters started digging in. As early as 1909, headlines declared that children were forced to eat the meat from a cow that had died in the field. The meat had already spoiled. Members from the Humane Society, yes, the organization that now ensures safety for animals, had come to investigate. Children had told them of repeated beatings with straps by farmhands. Bedrooms were full of bedbugs and lice and often unheated. Baths were offered every two weeks with one tub of water used for as many as 20 children. The investigation revealed that an underground railroad of sorts had been created by women of the nearby town of Vermilion. They assisted in the escape of a number of children from the horrid place. Some were eventually adopted by these same women. At the center of the scandal was one John Sprunger, superintendent of the Light of Hope Orphanage. When the media uproar reached a fever pitch, he finally made a public statement to the press. He didn't deny the claims. He offered an excuse instead. The organization was overwhelmed with debt and they had no means to provide the quality of care that the community demanded. He claimed to have sunk $30,000 of his own money into the organization. It wasn't enough to stem the tide of neglect and abuse. Sprunger pled for sympathy from those who would judge him. As shocking as this is to hear in today's view of child abuse, the excuse worked. Sprunger would face no legal charges. Back then, laws pertaining to the welfare of children were practically non-existent. The Light of Hope Orphanage, a cruelly ironic name I might add, was allowed to continue operating under new management. However, Sprunger maintained ownership. The claim was that the former abuses had been corrected. That was thrown heavily into doubt when a 14-year-old boy was killed while driving a horse-drawn wagon for the organization. His 12-year-old passenger nearly died as well. In September of 1911, Sprunger was on his deathbed. He would finally sell the entire operation and its assets to the Cleveland Area Christian Bible School effectively closing the orphanage. The organization had never reached financial solvency, and proceeds from the sale went to cover unpaid expenses. Sprunger would be dead within two weeks of the sale. Tragically, the Rosedale mansion would burn to the ground in 1923. Luckily, it was unoccupied at the time. Miller and Harriet had moved into a home in Vermilion in 1904. But when Rosedale turned to ashes, the building received an obituary all its own. It's though it were an esteemed member of the community itself. An article in the Mansfield News Journal proclaimed its known reputation as a haunted house. Repeated seances had imbued the place with an air of mysticism the public had come to accept its role as a kind of portal where one could go to commune with spirits unseen. After the fire, Miller and Harriet would continue living in their modest home at 856 State Street in Vermilion. Miller found success as a local hardware dealer in town. They called their new house their Sunshine Cottage. It was so termed because even though it was a house of average size, in comparing it to Rosedale, it certainly seemed more like a cottage. Harriet was known to continue her seances there as well. Her nephew was once quoted in a letter saying of Harriet, quote, But after her loss, which would have caused insanity in many a mother, if Aunt Harriet received even a tiny bit of comfort from her belief in spiritualism, I am glad for her. There was never anything more unusual in her experience than hundreds of authenticated, present-day ESP happenings. Aunt Harriet was never a witch, was never a medium, and despite her admitted peculiarities, was so generous that it took 77 listed cash bequests in her will to satisfy her generous nature. Harriet would die only two months after Miller. Her death was proclaimed in bold print in local newspapers. Her reputation in the community had become well known. Her funeral was, of course, steeped in spiritualistic practices. Obituaries in local newspapers made mention of the tragic loss of all her children and how her grief ignited her passion for spiritualism. Harriet would go on making converts from beyond the grave. One of Harriet's final acts, however, had nothing to do with spiritualism. Before she died, she had the presence of mind to update her will in the two months since her husband's death. In sum, their total estate was worth about $35,000. She had listed dozens of separate individuals as beneficiaries. Most of them were close friends and fellow spiritualists. The Ohio Spiritualist Association alone would receive $1,000. However, the bulk of her estate went to establish a trust fund for the crippled and poor children of Vermilion and Vicinity. It was to be known as the Miller and Harriet Wilbur Trust Fund. Undoubtedly, the disaster that became known as the Light of Hope Orphanage left a mark on her clearly, she felt a need to try to right the wrongs she had witnessed through countless years of children toiling in the neighboring fields. This dying wish would ultimately go unfulfilled. The trust was never enough to cover the expenses of such an endeavor. Eventually, the probate court ordered all assets and property of the estate to be liquidated to cover the unpaid expenses. Today, the land once owned by the Wilbers is now owned by the Lorraine County Metro Parks. its public property. Many are known to hike through its rugged wilderness. Some are inspired by the mystic presence of the place, a reputation established long ago by two grief-stricken parents. Maybe the real draw for the location comes not from the place itself, but from something much more powerful and universal. The pain of loss, especially loss triggered by the death of a child, is insurmountable, at least in this world. The hope that some part of us lives beyond our physical death is part of what keeps this secluded spot alive in our imaginations. The Wilbers espoused a spiritual wisdom that we, in human form, are not all that exists. They believed in something deeper, something not truly known, but felt. Their beliefs, born of the pain of grief, is what remains there today, in a wooded spot off the side of the road called Gore Orphanage. Many still seek to find what this location knows. If you go today, you're likely to find various trinkets, graffiti, and some occult items They are strewn among the few stone foundations that remain of what once stood as the Rosedale Mansion. Locals and tourists alike are still known to conduct seances there. Some claim to conjure spirits of forlorn children. Some claim to hear their tortured cries. What they're searching for doesn't belong to a place. The Wilbers would tell you that a oneness with the spiritual realm can be sought anywhere. They worked to keep that awareness front and center in their lives, as they grew old without their children. May we all strive for the same kind of peace in this uncertain life. This concludes today's episode of Ohio Folklore. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this legendary story of Gore Orphanage. If so, please rate, review, and subscribe to Ohio Folklore on your chosen podcast platform. You can also find Ohio Folklore at OhioFolklore.com and on Facebook. And as always, keep wondering.